Krishna. Uh, today is, to the best of my knowledge, October 4th, 2020. I'm still here in Coronado and we're doing our Sunday Bhagavatam class. Thank you all for joining. <clears throat> so, Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Today we begin with 1, 8, 36, Canto 1, Chapter 8, Verse 36. Chinvanti Gayanti Grananti Vikshnasaha Smaranti nandanti tavehitam janaha Taiva pasyantya chireina tavakam Bhava pravaho paramang padam bhujam Ah, very beautiful verse. Uh, so in the first two lines, you probably noticed a lot of words end with anti, smaranti, nandanti, gayanti, shanvanti. That's the uh, third person plural present tense in Sanskrit, they. So they, janaha, which here is people, persons, uh, who, shrinvanti, hear, gayanti, sing, grananti, accept, uh, abhikshnasaha, regularly, uh, consistently, smaranti, who remember, Nandanti and take pleasure in tavehitam tava your ihitam your activities. So people who hear about your activities, they sing about them. They they really embrace them. They they're doing this all the time. Smaranti they remember them. They rejoice in these activities. So what happens to those people? That's so the first two lines say people who do this. So what happens to them? Taeva, those very people. That's kind of what it means. Taeva, those very people. Pashanti, they see. Pashanti, they see. Achirena, before long. Tavakam. Bhava pravahu paramang padambujam. They see your lotus feet. Actually, it's funny because we always say lotus feet in English. The Sanskrit always says foot lotus. They see your foot lotus. So in, in Sanskrit, actually, it's, I mean, it's the same thing, really. But in Sanskrit, it's that you are seeing the lotus, but that lotus is the feet of the Lord. So they quickly, before long, those very people, they see your lotus feet, and your lotus feet are bhava pravahu paramang. They are the cessation. They are that which stops pravaha, the flowing of bhava, of material existence. Bhava, pravaha, this, in other words, the flowing means birth and death, suffering. We're suffering. We try to stop our suffering. And even if we do, some new suffering comes along. That's the nature of the material world. Uh, there's always some annoyance or some problem, just the nature of the world. So, uh, 
And it, it gets worse because not only is material life full of all kinds of inconveniences and annoyances and sometimes real tragedies, but it keeps going. It's a pravaha. It's just this, this um, and bhava means material existence, literally the world in which things become and then go out of existence. So pravaha in Sanskrit, bhava pravaha, means a stream, river, current, continuous flow, an unbroken series or a succession, a continuity of birth and death. So Krishna's lotus feet are uh, that which stops this flow of material life. And those people see Krishna's lotus feet because they are always hearing about, singing about, accepting, remembering, and enjoying the Lord's activities. So this is great news because it's so easy. All it takes is not to be a fool, really. Of course, that's very expensive for some people. But all it takes is, I mean, it's not that you need a lot of money, it's not that you have to have some social position or live in a certain neighborhood or drive a certain kind of car. You don't have to be psychologically perfect, like, you know, like free from all your psychological problems because everyone has some psychological problem. For one thing, psychologists make sure of that because what we used to just call just, okay, he's kind of gets angry sometimes or this person sometimes is a little moody. Now everything is a clinical disorder. Everything requires you to pay money to a psychologist. So they've just taken, I mean, obviously there, there really are some mental problems which require professional attention. But what I see nowadays is all kinds of personality traits that when I was growing up, it's just, okay, that's the kind of person he is or that's the way she is. And everyone just kind of had to accept it and the person lived their life. But now everything is some kind of psychological disorder. Everything requires an appointment with a psychologist so you can pay money. And many things require medication. I mean, some things really do require medication. So if you have a condition that requires medication, please take your medicine, make everyone's life more pleasant. But, um, but it's anyway, so, uh, so regardless of your psychological condition, you know, whatever, whoever you are, whatever you are, however successful you've been lately in Krishna consciousness or life itself, just do this. Hear about Krishna. Of course, people are listening to this class are doing it. So way to go. So hearing about, singing about, accepting, remembering, enjoying Krishna's activities, that is the way to stop this disaster of repeated material existence. And quickly, actually, Krishna's lotus feet are the way to stop it. And you can very soon see Krishna's lotus feet if you embrace his pastimes. So that's what this verse is talking about. Beautiful verse, very relevant, and we all need to uh, take advantage of this.
So the next verse, 1837, api. Api in Sanskrit, in this case, as the first word of a sentence indicates, it's a question. Like, is it that? So api adya today or now, nastvang sakratehita pravo, jihasasi suhudonu jivina. So Kunti is asking, is it true that now jihasasi, uh, you actually have decided to leave us? Ha means to leave. I won't, well, I won't go into all the grammar here. It's a little too much. But jihasasi uh, means to desire to give up. So Swit, indeed, do you actually desire now to, to leave us who are uh, Surida, your well-wishers, we are your dear friends, Anujivina. Jivina means that one that who lives in a certain way and Anujivina, uh, in other words, we live by following you, we are, we, our life is dependent on you. That's the idea here. Anu here is sort of the way, one way in Sanskrit, you can indicate like we depend on you for our life. So if you wanted to say we depend on you for our life, how would you say that? You try to translate it literally into Sanskrit, it'll get, you'll make a mess. But actually they have their own way of saying these things. So this is kind of the way they would say it, that we are your dear friends and our very lives depend on you. That's really what they're saying. Jihasasi suhidonu jivinaha. And the reason Kunti fears that Krishna does want to leave is because Swakritehita. Swakrita ihita. Ihita, you should know from the previous verse, if you're paying close attention to the Sanskrit that I was explaining. Ihita means activity, deed, you know, your deeds are now Sokrita, you have done what you wanted to do. Uh, swa means you did it yourself, that you have personally, you did what you wanted to do. You've carried out your plan. And uh, so now are you going to leave us because you accomplished your purpose? You did what you came to do. So therefore, Kunti asks, And she says, we are your dear friends who depend on you for our lives. That's really what she's saying there in Sanskrit. And Yeshang, Nachanyat, and, and, and us, for whom, Yeshang means for whom, there is no other parayana except your lotus feet. Again, your foot lotus. The word lotus is interesting. Ambuja means literally waterborne. Uh, waterborne, because the lotus is born in water. It, it grows in water. So ambu means water and ja means born. In the previous verse, the word for lotus was. Uh, Ambuja, same word, yeah. Padambuja, the foot lotus. Uh, whoops, went the wrong way there. Okay, back on track. So Padambuja, uh, your 
there's no other shelter or there's no other pariana. I'll explain that word pariana. Uh, except for your foot lotus, literally is what it says. Uh, but the lotus, or the lotus of your feet, which we would say lotus feet in English. Ambu means water, Jem means born. So it's the lotus that's born from the water. And this is, Shkunti says, this is the worst possible time for you to leave us because this is very interesting what, what it says in Sanskrit. Yojita, Rajasu Yojitang Hasam. Because we have been engaged in enmity and like bitter strife among the rulers of the world. Like there's a lot of people who want revenge against us. Um, Kurukshetra was of course a cataclysmic event. Millions of people died, but not everyone. It's not that every Kshatriya, every king, every warrior was at the battlefield. There were other warriors that didn't go there. And even, I mean, because after all, let's say a particular king from some country came to fight a Kurukshetra on one side or the other, but obviously that king had to leave some military force at home so that his city wasn't invaded while he was gone. So law and order didn't break down. They had to have, you know, the equivalent of the uh, police and the National Guard. And so there were, there were kings that didn't show up. After all, there were, um, there were 18 Akshohinis, which means that basically uh, approximately 18 countries took part. There were a lot more than, you know, there were dozens and dozens of countries. So a lot of people didn't take part and there were all kinds of soldiers. And, and because royal families intermarry, because if you're royalty and you marry royalty, there's not that much royalty to go around. So let's say you're a prince, you want to marry a beautiful princess. There's not that many princesses. I mean, it's not like saying, I want to marry someone that still you know, has two arms and two legs, or I want to marry someone from my country. Then there's you know, maybe millions of people to choose from. But if you have to marry royalty, uh, there's not a lot of it. And you, know, you need someone who's the right age for you, and some people just don't have the right chemistry. It's like, I would die before I would marry that person. And, you know, it was like that back then as much as it is now, like that. So, so um, yeah, so there, were, there, there was a lot of royalty that, that, so I guess the reason I mentioned that is because virtually every royal, every prince, every king, every warrior that, royal warrior that the Pandavas killed had some relative somewhere that was still alive and obviously would want revenge. You know, it's like with the mafia, you know, you mess with my brother, you mess with me. So it's like that. You know, the Kshatriyas, they have their honor code. And um, so here you have these, you know, large number of warriors with all these weapons and, you know, half of them want vengeance against the Pandavas. And the word yojita is very interesting because if Kunti Devi had used the word yukta, which is from the same root, uh, yojita is just a, you've heard the word yukta, which is related to the word yoga, like to be joined, like we were joined in enmity, so to speak. So, so yojita, for those of you who are curious, is the causative past participle of the verb. 
now that I've satisfied your curiosity about that, which means that we were made to be engaged in strife and enmity in conflict with among these kings. If it would have said yukta, it would have just mean, you know, we were engaged in conflict with all this royalty. But the word yojita means we were made to do it. Because after all, Krishna himself was pushing for the battle of Kurukshetra, as was Bhima, and Yudhisthira was hesitant, and Arjun, Yudhisthira didn't want to go to war. Arjun was ambivalent because for Yudhisthira, hey, even if we're just exiled again into the forest, Yudhisthira is kind of like a Kshatriya who really loves being like a Brahmin when he can, whenever he has the opportunity. And so for him, just to go to the forest, what's the problem? Plus, you know, Yudhisthira, he naturally doesn't, he's, he's a very kind, he's a very merciful person, doesn't want all these people to be killed. So he really didn't want to fight in Kurukshetra. And Arjuna is sort of always in the middle between his older brothers, you know, because one older brother, Yudhisthira, you know, it's like peace. And Bhima, of course, is the opposite. He, you know, it's clobber in time, like who's that, the Hulk or something? Anyway, you know, Bhima, he's, you know, he wants to fight. And so if you, if you, if you look at Arjuna, Arjuna often is sort of caught between these two older brothers. One says peace, one says war. Anyway, so, but the Pandavas, it was really Krishna. They were pushed into this. I mean, Beam obviously didn't have to be pushed, but they were pushed into this. And so in a sense, Kunti, Kunti is saying to Krishna, this isn't fair that somehow by your arrangement, we got involved in this war and now we've got all these warriors and these are tough guys. I mean, the Pandavas, of course, are super Kshatriyas, but these other warriors, they're, they're pretty tough guys. It's not that just like, you know, the Pandavas show up and make a face and they, they run away. I mean, it's not like that. These are tough guys. So Kunti is saying, Krishna, we were, you know, it was kind of your arrangement that we get involved in all these things. Now we get all these people all around the world that, that want to kill us and you're leaving. So I hope Krishna, you can see that this is not a great idea. So that's basically what, what Kunti is saying here. I, and I, I tell you what Parayana is because uh, Kunti prays that we have no other Parayana except you. And um, Parayana, of course, it's sort of a combination of para and ayana. But anyway, it means the final goal or aim, the last resort or refuge, principal object, the, the so the, yeah, the ultimate shelter, the ultimate shelter, refuge, resort uh, for the Pandavas and their mother was Krishna. So Kunti says, you know, we're kind of made to engage in all this enmity. There's all these people that want to kill us. And, um, and now you're leaving. And we are, your, we are your dear friends. We are your dear friends. And, but it seems like you accomplished what you wanted. This is what you wanted to do. You've done it. So now you're going to leave us because we can't live without you. So it's a very beautiful prayer by Queen Kunti. And uh, we'll do one more here. Kevayam nama rupa bhyam jadubik sahapandavaha bhavato darshanam jarhi rishika nami veshitu. Very nice. So, Kevayam, who are we? 
very simple Sanskrit, ke, who, but in Sanskrit, the interrogative words like who, uh, they are declined in terms of gender and number and case. So I know you were worried about that. So cave I am simply means who are we? Who are we? Like, in other words, like we're not like, who are we? In English, you might say, I mean, who are we? Nama rupa beyond with our reputations and our forms. Nama rupa, name and form. This is a common theme in the Bhagavatam. Material world is nothing but a bunch of forms, temporary material objects that you put names on. So Pandavas obviously were very famous in the world. Everyone knew about the Pandavas. And as far as their rupa, their form, uh, you know, they were very big, very tough guys. They were actually literally... I mean, in, 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 in the way the word is normally used in English, they were demigods. Uh, we use the word sort of in a special way, which is not a problem. But uh, so a demigod in, in the sort of the traditional English use of the word means the offspring, the child of a god and a mortal. Or it can also mean a mortal that's raised to divine rank. So... The Pandavas, their, their fathers were all, were all devas, gods. Their mothers were human. And so they're literally demigods, like half gods. Uh, but anyway, so, so they have these being half divine, divine here meaning like material heaven. Uh, they were, they had extraordinary bodies very beautiful, very powerful. And so Kunti's saying, but what good is that? You know, we have these big reputations. We have these super bodies. You know, my sons have these super Kshatriya bodies, but who are we with all that? You know, what good is that going to do us? Kevayam nama rupa vyam pandava. Who are we, the Pandavas? It's interesting because she kind of called herself a Pandava. That was her husband. So who are we, the Pandavas, with the Yadus? Kunti herself is a Yadu. We should remember that Kunti is not a Kuru. Kunti was born in the Yadu dynasty, and the five Pandavas, their only human blood is, well, Yudhisthira, uh, 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 Bhima, and Arjun, their only human blood or DNA is from the Yadus because on their father's side, they're demigods. So uh, Yudhisthira, Bhima, and Arjuna are, again, their only human DNA is from the Yadus, Kunti's from the Yadus. And of course, by their connection with Pandu, they've all become Pandavas. Uh, the twins, Nakula and Sahadeva, on their uh, mother's side, of course, are Madreyas from the kingdom of uh, Madra, like Madri. And uh, so she says, who are we Pandavas with Yadus, with our you know, names and our, our bodies? Bhavatava Darshanam Jarhi, who are we when? Yarhi, uh, there is Bhavato means of you, Adarshanam, when we can't see you and we're not seeing you. And he, she says, it's like, it's like, 
when a lord or a master, Isha, you know, means a lord, Isha, Ishwara. So Ishi too is just another way to say it. It's like of a lord, when there is uh, like the senses, it, it's like who, you know, uh, what is a lord without, see how Prabhupada translates, there's different ways it translates it. As the name and fame of a particular body is finished with the disappearance of the living spirit, similarly, if you do not look upon us, all our fame and activities along with the Pandavas and Yadus will end at once. So when the Ishitu, which Prabhupada called, it literally means a lord or master, Prabhupada uh, here takes it to be the soul, who is the master of the body after all. And so just like in the Adarshanam, in the absence or the non-seeing of the soul, what is the use of the senses? So what is the use of us when we don't see you? Uh, when So in other words, as she, Kunti, if you kind of break down this metaphor, Kunti is saying that just as the soul gives life to the senses, so you are the soul of the Pandavas. You are like our soul and we are really alive only when you are present. So that's what Kunti is saying. Okay, so perhaps we can take questions now, if there are any. Maybe we're waiting for the questions to come in, if there are any. Uh, I'll just do one more verse quickly. Neyang shobhishate tatra yatedani gadadhara. So here Kunti addresses Krishna as gadadhara. Gada means a club that you, you know, bash people over the head with. So, and dhara means holding, holding dhara, like Krishna's chakra dhara, he holds the chakras, gada dhara, he holds the gada, and so on. So, uh, Kunti Devi says, not neya, which means not yam, not this, this, feminine, it's the feminine this. Uh, and it, the, the masculine would be I am, and the neuter would be idam. So the feminine this by itself come, it's understood it means this earth because bumi or bu is a feminine word. So if you just say this in the feminine in Sanskrit, in this context, it means the earth was feminine. So shobhishate. Uh, this earth will not shine, will not appear beautiful, uh, will not exhibit splendor. It's from the, you get from the word, which you get the word shoba. It's so the, uh, the verb is shub, which you get shoba or here the future. Uh, it will not shine. Uh, the verb here is translated as to beautify, uh, embellish, adorn, to beautify oneself, to look beautiful or handsome, to shine, be bright or splendid. So this earth will not shine, will not be beautiful, will not be bright and splendid. Uh, why? Tatra, when the time comes, like there in, Yathedani, as it does now, uh, yata means as, idani now, gadadhara. So when that moment comes, 
when you leave, this earth will not be beautiful, will not shine, will not be will not have the same splendor as it does now, Gadaghara, because now it is Twat Padar Ankita. It is marked uh, by your feet. It shines now. Bhati means it shines. It shines because it has been marked by your feet and uh, which are, and your feet are Swalakshana Bilakshitai. And your feet uh, are, have these, um, I'll just one second. I know what it means, but just gonna uh, give you a bunch of synonyms here. Uh, let's see, Lakshana. So it is marked by marks, or it's characterized by these characteristics. Or so, uh, so Anka means a mark or sign, and Lakshana is, is a synonym of. Uh, so here, are the verse is just using using synonyms to say say that now. Uh, the earth is marked by your feet and your feet are also have special marks uh, which, which also characterize it. Your feet have, are marked by special marks. We know Krishna has different symbols on his feet. So it's very poetic Sanskrit. It's interesting because Kunti is talking about beauty, about how the earth is beautiful now and will not be as beautiful and to express this, she's using very beautiful poetic language. So uh, that's pretty good. We got up to verse 39. We did four verses. Uh, so a few questions here. In relation to the purport, Sri Prabhupada talks about how all the pastimes of the Lord are relishable not only his intimate ones. How can one correctly ascertain the limited or unlimited benefits of relishing certain pastimes by Krishna without confusing him to be influenced by the modes of material nature? Well, first of all, if you're hearing about Krishna's pastimes, you cannot lose. So it's not that, okay, 12 points for this Leela, eight points for that Leela. I mean, basically, if you are attracted to Krishna, attached to Krishna, if you're listening to Krishna's pastime, you're doing very well, and I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, Krishna influenced by the modes of material nature? Uh, absolutely not. If you, if you listen to Krishna's pastimes, it's obvious he's not influenced by the modes of material nature. You can, all the acharyas say that, all the shastras say that, and it's, it's obvious. Just pay attention to what Krishna's doing, his mood, and just, yeah, Krishna's wonderful. If we just pay attention to Krishna's pastimes, it becomes very clear that he's completely transcendental, the way he speaks, the way he acts. Why didn't all kings and soldiers get involved with the war of Kurukshetra? When it was such an important moment for the world, did they think it was best or not to not take sides? Or maybe they did that to care for their kingdoms and people. All of, yeah, all of that. I mean, this is the real world. We, you know, sometimes we get a very simple picture of right and wrong. But uh, if, you, if you look more closely at the Shastra, these are real people. You look at any war in history, and there's a lot of countries that don't want to get involved. Because first of all, war is uncertain. I mean, in this case, Krishna was on one side. And that's how the Bhagavad Gita ends. Yatra Jogeshwara Krishna, Yatra Partha Dhanardara. Wherever there's Krishna or June, there's going to be victory. 
but not everyone was a pure devotee. Not all the kings were devotees. And so from their point of view, you know, if we support one side and they lose, we are up the creek without a paddle, as they say. So it's very dangerous. If you choose the wrong side in a war, uh, you could lose everything, including your life. Some people just didn't see an advantage. Like, why should we get involved? There's always risk. You know, things are going well here. So people could have many reasons not to want to go to war. Uh, and there were some people that didn't really understand that Krishna was God. And maybe they didn't really understand how evil Duryodhana was. Maybe they thought it was fake news. Just like we have politicians now who are compulsive liars who lie more than they speak the truth. And so anything which does not flatter them, they just say it's false, it's fake news. And so back then, you can take it for granted that as far as exactly why did the Pandavas get exiled and was it really a, a crooked gambling match? I mean, there were obviously different versions. There were obviously people who were saying it was fair. You know, they agreed to a gambling match, they lost. So there were people who had received many favors from Duryodhana. Duryodhana used to bribe people. He'd give money to people. He gave them positions. And um, there were people that maybe owed favors to Duryodhana, but at the same time were afraid of Krishna. So it's better just to stay home. Not only that, even people that did participate in the battle, they had to leave half of their army or some of their army back home so because they knew they might lose. And if we do lose, we... Our whole kingdom can't be destroyed. So people, there were many, many, many reasons to leave people behind or not to take part in the war. So pride and desire for fame seem to be things that will get to people. Even among devotees, one way or another, is there a way to purify it and use it for Krishna and hopefully one day get rid of it? Well, for one thing, we can be proud of Krishna. We can be proud of Prabhupada. We can be uh, proud of ISKCON in its brighter moments. And um, as far as purifying it, yeah, by being proud of the right people and the right things. And also, as I've often said, to practice bhakti yoga, you have to have a certain amount of self-understanding. People who are just blind to their own faults are not great candidates for... Uh, spiritual advancement. And that in and of itself is not is not just intrinsically a spiritual quality. It's just it means not being a fool, it's just having some common sense and and realizing, admitting the obvious that I'm imperfect. First of all, because I'm in the material world. And second of all, that's just me. So we should just have enough decency and enough sanity to admit the obvious that I'm imperfect. I make mistakes. Sometimes I cause trouble for myself. Sometimes I offend other people and therefore I take into a spiritual process, not because I'm perfect, but because I'm not perfect and I want to improve myself. So that should help. On a related topic and in relation to your recent, oh, thank you. Brilliant paper on hermeneutics, thank you. And Prabhupada, on what basis do you, do we defend our faith in a claim that our Shastras, Bhagavad Gita and Bhagavatam 
are divinely revealed. Accepting that Shastra is where the buck ends. Uh, in terms of our tripartite Guru Sadhu Shastra authority is one thing, but how are we so sure that Shastra is 100% spiritual, infallible, and perfectly handed down to us? Is that all? Just 100% spiritual, infallible, and perfectly handed down? That's easy. Um, ultimately, um, everyone looks at the world and comes to their conclusion. So I try to be rational in my life. Uh, and I have looked at Shastra and I have practiced Shastra and uh, I've tried to live my life as best I can in this crazy world, uh, according to Shastra as, as taught by Prabhupada. And I'm fully convinced that yes, it is spiritual knowledge. And I haven't found any, uh, any reason not to accept it as such. Clearly, as Prabhupada pointed out, there are things in Shastra which are historically specific. In other words, there are certain yoga processes that we don't do nowadays. There are uh, the social relationships and, you know, in marriage and friendship, they were based on a very different world. It was an agrarian society. Uh, for anyone who knows anything about history knows that uh, the way people see the world in traditional agrarian societies and the way they see the world in postmodern uh, high-tech societies is very, very, very different. And in terms of all kinds of things, so simply to be sort of what I would call a, uh, what would I call it? Sort of a uh, history narcissist. In other words, to think, I mean, people think, no, our time now is the best because our, you know, we're politically correct in ways that people didn't understand back then. For those people who are very proud, you know, previously in history, people didn't understand. They weren't as politically correct as we are. Uh, first of all, I would say those people are incredibly ignorant. If you don't study history, I mean, I mean, to think that, I mean, it, you'd have to be really stupid not to know that in the future, people will look back at our times, including the politically correct people and think these people were insane. They didn't understand anything. They denied a huge amount of the social science that was available to them because they were more concerned with their slogans and their name calling and everything. I mean, people that people nowadays, I mean, I think people who are leading sincere spiritual lives will be viewed favorably in the future after the glorious Krishna conscious victory in this world. But, but in terms of people who are very proud of their morality and look down at previous centuries, they cannot even imagine how stupid they will look to future generations. They can't even imagine. It doesn't mean everything they say is wrong. Some of the things they say are correct, but the way they go about it is um, they can't even imagine.
So Hegel, the, the, the uh, philosopher of history, Hegel, uh, said that it's a huge mistake for type of, you know, like uh, historical narcissism for people in one age to think that in every way we're better than people in the past and they were fools and we're very smart because every century, every age, it has its faults, undoubtedly. It also has its wisdom. And a lot of that wisdom gets lost. Just like we learn things that people didn't know in the past, we forget things that people knew in the past. And so a little humility about history, I think is, can be very healthy. But in any case, uh, I, I mentioned that because when you look at Shastra, uh, some of the attitudes, some of the social roles are based on a completely different world in which people had a very different understanding of what human life is. For example, people used to define themselves in terms of duty. Now, when you say freedom, uh, they had freedom. For example, they had political freedom in the sense that in the Mahabharata, you can criticize the king. That's not illegal. You can't be punished just because you criticize the king. It's your right to do so. People had freedom of speech. People had freedom of religion. People had freedom of movement. People could travel. They didn't, if you don't like where you're living, you can go somewhere else. So people had all kinds of freedom that many people nowadays don't have in the many dictatorships which exist in the world today. Not to speak of, you know, a few centuries ago or last century. So there was, there was freedom of religion, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of movement. There were all kinds of freedoms, but they saw themselves not as just free of everything because they had common sense. They understood that when you're born into a society, you receive a huge amount of gifts from society. The, your ability to speak language. Without society, you couldn't speak. You would be not even a good animal. I mean, you would be basically, first of all, you'd probably, first of all, you'd probably be dead. But um, in other words, if human beings couldn't speak, they would just be at best, they would be just animals. The fact that I can walk out the door, the fact that there is a door to walk out is because of society. The fact that I'm not just climbing out of a tree is because there's a society that built streets and sidewalks there are police that protect us. And actually, if you look at real statistics, uh, the overwhelming majority of police actually do a good job. If you take the trouble to look at statistics, which of course very few people do because they already know the truth. They don't need to know the facts. So, I mean, the fact that there are trees in public places, which they did in Vedic culture also, they'd plant, you know, they, because India is a hot country and uh, they'd plant shade trees everywhere. There were wells, so, you, so if you were just traveling or just even in your village, you could have fresh water. There, there are, I mean, we, how could we ever pay our debt to our parents? I mean, if you have good parents or decent parents, how can you ever pay that debt? Krishna says in the in the Bhagavatam, Krishna personally said that that the, the the one of the greatest evils is that if you if your parents are elderly and need your help, your parents who took care of you and you don't help them, you go to hell for that. That's demonic. It's demonic 
not to help your parents when they need you if they actually helped you. And so, I mean, our debt to society is enormous. So this modern concept that I'm just a free individual in the universe is insanity. It's insanity. Of course, we're individuals. Of course, we want a certain amount of freedom, but that has to be balanced with social responsibility. And people in the past had a much greater sense of their social responsibilities. So um, again, to understand the Bhagavatam, to understand the reason some people sometimes speak in certain ways or act in certain ways, you, you need to have the power, which very few people have nowadays, to actually think your way back into a very different world and to see that within their world, they had the same basic moral concerns we do. They cared very deeply about justice. Krishna cares about justice. That's why Krishna says in the Gita that he comes in every age to establish justice. Because that's what the word Dharma means, among other things. It means justice. So they cared about justice. They cared about being good people. They wanted to see other people treated fairly but they were living in a very different world. So uh, people whose intelligence is extremely superficial uh, think that everyone has to be like them and anyone in the history of the world that's not just like them is immoral. Some people are immoral, of course, but the Bhagavatam or the Gita is talking about a very different cultural situation which, if we compare results, like which culture, ours today, the modern mundane culture, or that one, produced more good people, more charity, more self-realization, uh, I think they win. So anyway, uh, trying to live a rational life, I've studied Shastra most of my life, and uh, I'm a satisfied customer. Uh, that uh, not only by seeing that it makes sense, but by the powerful spiritual experiences I've had, powerful realizations, I have every good reason to accept Shastra as a sacred source of knowledge. So another question, somos nosotros demigods, so in Spanish, are we also demigods uh, or something less? Something less. Uh, my, I had a wonderful loving father, but I don't think he came from uh, Indra Loka or some other demigod realm. I think he was just a very good loving father. So in relation to, I'm translating Spanish here, in relation to the infallibility of scriptures, how can we literally accept and in, at times explain histories a little eccentric, histories are a little eccentric for our perception today like the personality of a codice and others that come that 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 are presented in the scriptures. First of all, um, Shastra has speaks in many different um, what would the word be voices. I mean, there are metaphorical voices. We have the great uh, what's the word allegory of the Purunjana story. The Chaitanya Charitamrita, no less, says there are some illusory stories in the Bhagavatam, uh, such as uh, Krishna's queens being kidnapped or, and, and so on. And some things are symbolic. For example, 
the Bhagavatam says that um, eclipses occur when Rahu swallows the, the sun or the moon or chases them. And the, the Acharyas say in Kant, their commentary is like, obviously that's not what really happens. Remember, it's not like Rahu comes and swallows the sun, there's an eclipse. It's just, it's sort of a, it's a fable. And so there are fables in the Bhagavatam. Krishna is not a fable. The fact that there is a supreme person with a spiritual body named Krishna, that's not a fable. That's all real. That's just real. But there are all these different kinds of language. So as far as the personality of Kali, for example, take the Bhagavatam. Uh, Maya, Maya, I mean, there is a goddess who is the minister of illusion and deception in this world, Maya Devi. But if you read the Bhagavatam, which is our highest scripture, I've explained that in the paper I just wrote, how many times do you see Maya herself actually coming and like bewildering someone? Really, and, and, and if you read the Sankhya descriptions in the Bhagavatam, it's obvious that sort of there is an illusory power built into the modes of nature. And that's the way the Bhagavatam describes it. It's just like, for example, there's a personality of the sun named Vivaswan. And yet the sun, at least it's more simple, more basic functions like heat and light can be perfectly explained in terms of astrophysics. You know, how, how the sun functions. And so there is a physical sun and there is a physical moon and a physical, there's a goddess Bhumi who is the goddess of this planet. However, geology is not just wrong. I mean, there, there is real, and geo, geo, of course, means the earth. And so there is a science of the earth called geology. And it's not just a, I mean, I know some people will think it's a conspiracy. I mean, for some people, there are very few things on earth that are not conspiracies. So geology is not an evil conspiracy. It's actually legitimate science of the earth. And yet there is a goddess of the earth. So um, so I think that some of the stories in the Bhagavatam, for example, seem eccentric or bizarre if a person is actually not a serious scholar. In other words, if you actually understand uh, history and if you understand socio-psychological factors that how people in different economic, political, social, historical realities, how they perceive things and how different moral systems proceed from, come out of different historical situations and that the situation we're in now is just one, I mean, if you want to talk about bizarre, Look at the modern world. If you want to talk about eccentric and bizarre, just take a good look at the planet we're on right now. So I think it's a question of, of, of understanding. So thanks for the interesting knowledge, Maharaj. I have a question. It is said in the Shastras that if one becomes a pure devotee by this, he or she liberates 100 generations forward and 100 generations backward. There are two questions. One, does someone have to become a pure devotee for this to happen? Uh, yeah, I don't think if, you know, someone joined the Hare Krishna movement in 1982 and 
you know, did some service for a little while that, you know, and then left. I, I think, or even if let's say I, I give my, I think if you give your life to Krishna, if you're, if, if you really take to the process and you're really dedicated to Krishna, even if you're not in every way pure, I mean, clearly Krishna is going to reward you beyond what you can imagine. What does it mean to liberate or, someone, or does someone return to the spiritual world directly or is he given the opportunity to start devotional service or is he born or to be born to a rich family or Vaishnava family? Um, yeah, I mean, there's one point that Krishna says, you get what you deserve. I mean, it's, it can't be that, okay, here's a person just kind of by chance they were born uh, or in a certain family, and then one of their relatives or one of their ancestors became a pure devotee. So this person is liberated. This person does not deserve to be liberated. This person is not Krishna conscious. I mean, that's absurd. How could someone just get lucky? Krishna rejects that. He rejects that in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, I'm equal to everyone. I reciprocate with everyone. So how could someone get liberation who doesn't deserve it, who's not even interested in Krishna just because they got lucky? I mean, that's absurd. And so therefore, if generations past or future are liberated, it must be the case that Krishna, knowing that a devotee would, you know, was kind of, was going to be liberated because Krishna has been in the heart of that devotee for millions of lifetimes and knows that, you know, the time has come now that Krishna knows that in this lifetime, this devotee is really ready and anxious to go all the way, become Krishna conscious. Then Krishna arranges to put that person in the right family. Krishna, I mean, Krishna's very smart. He's, I mean, you can't imagine how intelligent he is and he organized it. So I mean, a statement about 100 generations past and future does not cancel out. It does not contradict. It does not eliminate all the other many, many, many statements that say that you get what you deserve. So everyone gets what they deserve, and that includes ancestors, and it includes future family members. Everyone gets what they deserve. There is justice in Krishna's plan. Krishna says in the Gita, he comes to this world to reestablish justice. So none of these statements contradict the basic fact of reciprocation, which Krishna emphasizes. So for example, it's common that if someone's about to die, uh, devotees want to put in their, on their tongue a tulsi leaf and sprinkle holy water and chant the Mahamantra. That's all nice. It's, um, it's, you know, it's very pious. It's very sincere. At the same time, the person is going to get what they deserve. That's what Krishna actually says in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, Yang Yang Vapi Smaran Bhavam in chapter eight, that whatever a person is remembering, and, and that verse is often misunderstood. So I want to go into it more literally because actually most devotees I talk to don't quite understand what Krishna is saying. So Krishna, first of all, does not say whatever you remember at the time of death. That's not what he says. He says whatever you are remembering. In other words, it's not just that 
for a second, oh, Krishna, or for a second, oh, sh you know, you just, or say something bad and that, no, it's jung jung vapi smaran, whatever you have been re remembering, not just like suddenly the time of death, you remember something. Jung jung vapi smaran bhavam, ante kalevaram. When at the end, ante, uh, one gives up the body, one always goes precisely to that bhava, to that state of existence. Why? This is very important. So first of all, Krishna is not talking here about just sudden things like, oh, I remember my Aunt Eloise. Okay, I'm going to go to Aunt Eloise. Krishna is not talking about little details here. The word he uses, yang yang vapi smaran bhavam. Bhava means a state of existence, a certain quality or level of existence. He's not just talking about specific little things, but rather a state of consciousness, a certain level of consciousness. Yang yang vapi smaran bhavam and and a state of consciousness that you have been remembering, not that you just remember once, but that you have been remembering and uh, you will go to that bhava. So Krishna says, if you have been remembering a bhava, a state of existence, you will go to that bhava that you were remembering. Why? Siddhartha bhava bhavita. So bhava bhavita uh, means because you are always creating the consciousness of that state of consciousness. And Krishna uses the word siddha always. So I'm trying to translate it very literal. It's kind of it's kind of a causative past participle again, which I know many of you are very fond of causative past participles. So what Krishna is literally saying here is that whatever state of, of being, and the B in the word being in English is the B from Baba, by the way. That's where we get the B. And so whatever state of being a person is remembering as a continuous activity, not as a one time someone throws a picture of Krishna in front of their face, but the state of being that you are remembering as you give up the body, at the end time, Krishna says, Jajatiyante, at the end, Kalevaram, as, as one gives up the body, Tang Tang Eva, which sort of means in each and every case. I mean, literally, Tang Tang Eva means to that, to that only. That's literally what it means, to that, to that only. Tang Tang Eti, one goes because Sada, because that person was always, Tad Bhava Bhavita, was always creating that state of consciousness in their mind. They were always creating that state of consciousness in their mind, and therefore, time of death, they are remembering it. They don't, not, they remember it, they're remembering. Why? Because that's what they were always cultivating. That's the state of consciousness they were always cultivating. And uh, 
So they go to it, to that, to that alone, literally. Yang Yang Eva, Tang Tang Eva, 81 goes. So uh, therefore, getting back to the 100 generations, that's what determines what you go. All these statements in different Puranas or different Shastras that, you know, 100 generations, yeah, I'm not saying it's not true. However, it does not, it cannot contradict what God himself has said. It's not an alternative explanation of what happens at death. So Krishna has said this, and therefore, as far as the 100 and 100, that has to be understood in a way that is consistent with, harmonious with, does not contradict what Krishna is saying about where you go. And so therefore, if, if a relative is not a pure devotee, then obviously they're liberated in the sense that anyone that takes to Krishna consciousness is liberated. Rupa Goswami explains that. And therefore, in your next life, to get a chance to be a devotee is to be liberated. So I hope that's clear. Because a person who performs pious activities as and as a reward is elevated to the heavenly planets does not have the opportunity there to continue growing spiritually. Oh, uh, it depends. It depends. I mean, some people, obviously, in the heavenly planets are practicing devotees, but some people become too intoxicated or carried away by the super enjoyment there. And uh, we see even in this world, some devotees that have a lot of money are still kind of very serious practitioners, and some devotees that have money, it goes to their head. So it depends. Bhagavad Gita says that he has to return to the planet. No, when Krishna says you have to return from heaven, he's talking about people who want to go to the heavenly planets, not as a place like I want to join a Hare Krishna temple in Indra Loka. That's not the idea. They're going there because they don't want Krishna. They want Swarga. So Krishna says, if you go to heaven because that's what you want, then you come back because you know you spent all your money all your it's like you go on vacation you have a certain amount of money on your credit card when you've maxed out your credit card you have to go home because you're no there's nothing left on your credit cards so krishna is obviously talking about people that go to heaven because they don't want krishna they want heaven so thank you all very much uh it's kind of a long class so that means you have to send a lot more money in so I hope I will, uh, hope you'll all be back next week. Hare Krishna.